Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and as I told you guys last week, we are not going to let this first football national championship in 41 long years fall victim to the 24-hour news cycle. At least not on this podcast. It ain't happening. Other outlets, other fan bases of every other program out there, they might have already moved on to looking ahead to the 2022 season. But you know what? That's because they have to. They didn't win the national title. That sucks for them. We did. And we are not done talking about it just yet. We're going to get to 2022. We've got all offseason to do that, guys. And you know, the offseason, it's long. we got plenty of time to talk about next season. But when you've been dreaming of something for so long, when you've been starved for it, lusting after it, as all of us have for, I mean, most of, if not our entire lives, in my case, certainly my entire life, You've got to bask in the glory for a little bit. I mean, it would be criminal to do otherwise, right? So I hope you don't mind if I go back to the well at least one more time today. And no promises. We might be coming back to it a couple more times over the next couple weeks. I don't know. This is new to me. I've never experienced this. I don't know what the protocol is. I don't know when I'm supposed to stop talking about it. I don't know if I ever will because this is probably the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of my life. Other than meeting my amazing wife, this is, I mean, unquestionably the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in the history of my life. So I don't know what the protocol is. I don't know what's appropriate, what's not. I really don't care. I just know that I'm still feeling some kind of way. I know a lot of you guys are, and it's my podcast. We're going to talk about the National Championship at least one more time today. And if you don't like that, if you do mind it, I'm sorry I am, but it's happening anyway. I'm still living in this moment. And look, I know a lot of you are very eager to hear our thoughts on the NFL departures, who has hit the portal, who might hit the portal, who we might actually land the portal, who we might bring into the program. And look, we're not ignorant of what's going on out there with all that stuff. Like We're very well aware of it. We're just trying to be patient and let it all play out over the next couple of days because as you guys know, all these guys don't make their decisions and don't release their announcements on the exact same day. They do it kind of on their own time frame. So we didn't want to do an episode on the departures and all the transfers and all that kind of stuff. And then like 10 minutes after we post it, another couple names hit the news wires. We've done that kind of thing before. We don't want to do that. So we're just giving it a little bit of time to play out over the next couple of days. 
But we will. We're absolutely going to be covering all of that probably as soon as the end of this week. We're just trying to give it a little bit of air. Uh, we figure out probably after the celebration this weekend, you're going to see a lot more movement, at least the names that haven't come out. You'll probably hear some announcement one way or the other. So that's coming. But today, I want to come on here and discuss a few odds and ends coming out of the National Championship game. Uh, I gave you guys my instant reaction as soon as I got in from Indy. And then Curse and I, we answered a bunch of questions uh, on our mailbag episode later on last week, but there are still quite a few requests that I'm still trying to make my way through from listeners. I've gotten a bunch of questions over the past week or so, and I haven't been able to address them directly yet. And a lot of them are kind of the same themes, basically the same kind of questions. So I thought today would be a good day to get to some of those things. Before we do that, though, I do want to give you guys one quick reminder about Nico Sports. They have put together this incredibly awesome limited edition 2022 National Championship Commemorative Football. I know a lot of you guys, if you're like me, you've already dropped tons of cash, probably too much cash on National Championship gear. But do yourself a favor and make one more purchase. If you haven't done so already, you're going to want to get this limited edition commemorative football. You don't want to be that guy, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and one of your friends has got this awesome commemorative football from this national championship, this first national championship in, in 41 years. Hopefully, there's going to be a lot more to come, but this is the first one. It's the first one in 41 years. So this is the one you want to get that commemorative football for. You want to have that down the road. You want to be able to show your kids, your grandkids, you want to be pass that down through the family. So go ahead and get yours today. Guys, they are really selling quickly. They're selling like hotcakes right now. There's only so many left in stock. So make sure, go to my Twitter profile. My Twitter account's at glory underscore UGA and look at the pinned tweet we have at the top of our, of our stream and it will have a link to purchase that commemorative football. Plus, don't forget, use the promo code GLORY for $10 off your purchase. Again, that's the promo code GLORY for $10 off. So hurry again, guys. They are selling fast, so make sure to jump in there and get yours today before they are gone. But okay, the first thing I want to start with today is this. Like One thing I've had a lot of people ask me to do after the game is give a recap or review of like the entire trip to Indianapolis and what that experience was like. We obviously recapped the game and I mentioned, I think I mentioned a few things about the trip, whether it's on social media or last week on the show. I'm pretty sure I mentioned a couple of things. I know I put some pictures out there, but I haven't had a chance to go into detail yet and I keep getting requests to do that. So I think that's a, that's a fun place to start. So let me just start from the beginning here. So we left on Saturday, Saturday morning, and we drove, we drove, we did not fly. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Foremost among those was just the reality that a lot of flights recently have been getting canceled and we did not want to potentially have to deal with that. So we decided, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and drive. Yeah, I know there's some winter weather issues going on and we could get stuck driving too. We actually took like two big giant quilts just in case we got, we had to pull over the side of the road and got stuck there and couldn't go anywhere. So we wouldn't like freeze to death in our car, but we thought that driving would be the the best option to take. And a lot of people flew and I don't think they had many issues. That's awesome. I'm glad you guys did. But in retrospect, I'm glad we did. We did driving was, it was great. It worked out really well. It wasn't that long. I mean, look, really, honestly, when you've driven to Columbia, Missouri, like I have many times, usually when we go to Columbia, Missouri, we stop halfway in Metropolis, not quite halfway, it's a little bit more than halfway, but we stop in Metropolis, Illinois, this random nowhere town that has this giant Harris casino, just like in the middle of nowhere. Uh, We stay there and then we drive the rest of the way into Columbia to get there. But coming back from Columbia, when we've driven there, we drive the entire way back, which depending on traffic can be 12 or 13 hours. So when you make that trip, eight and a half, nine-ish hours, it ain't so bad. It's not so bad. 
And we did not drive directly into Indianapolis on Saturday. We actually drove to Lexington, Kentucky, which is more than halfway. We understand that. I get that. Yes, I, I, I can look at a map, and I know that's more than halfway. But we uh, we stopped there for a specific reason. Actually, first off, I just love Lexington. I think it's a really cool college town. I think it's a very underrated college town. It's one of my favorite SEC road trips to make every other year. And if the schedule does ever change to where the SEC goes to a pod schedule, I really, really, really sincerely hope that Lexington is in, or Kentucky is in our pod because I really enjoy going to Lexington and that's a selfish thing for me to say. I know I understand that, but selfishly, I do go on all these trips and I love going to Lexington. It's a great place to go. So I was excited to be able to go to Lexington. I, usually I'm going to go there. I mean, I have no other reason to go there except for once every other year. So to have a reason to go, it was cool to stop in there. Uh, they actually had, a, I think it's a brand new hotel. I'd never seen it before. I, and I looked at some reviews. I think it is brand new. The Marriott City Center. We usually stay either the Hilton or the Hyatt Regency, which is connected to Rupp Arena there. So we stayed at this place, and it was immaculate. It was awesome. It was incredible. It's maybe the nicest hotel I've ever stayed in my entire life. And I usually stay, I mean, I don't stay like Ritz Carlton's or Four Seasons or anything like that. I'm not that kind of high, high roller, but usually stay at pretty nice hotels. My wife's kind of a stickler for that kind of thing. If we're going to travel, she wants to do like at least a, a decent, a nice hotel. This might've been like one of the nicest hotels I've ever stayed in my entire life. And I travel a lot. Like I really do. Um, so this was a great one. Um, enjoyed that. And I actually canceled my reservation. I had a reservation at the Hyatt Regency for the 2022 football season. And when we play Kentucky in late November, but canceled that and booked this new Marriott City Center. It's a little bit more expensive, but totally worth it again. One of the national hotels I've stayed at, very centrally located, awesome. So if you're if you're gonna make that trip, strongly recommend it. It was fantastic. Um, but I love Lexington, and it just worked out incredibly well for us. Look, I know that we're terrible at basketball. Trust me, guys. I love college basketball. College football is my first love, but I love college basketball. I, I, I actually sit down, and every Saturday in the college basketball season, I will be sitting down on my sofa watching college basketball almost the entire day. Now, if we have a Georgia tennis match, I'll go to that, then I'll come home and I'll watch more college basketball. I love it, and it pains me deeply that we are not more competitive in college basketball, and we've had quite a few questions about that also. Trust me, we will get to this train wreck of a basketball team and Tom Green and that whole situation in a couple weeks but again we're 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 gonna live this up while we can this national championship we'll get to basketball and those unpleasant things later on but I've always wanted to go to a game in Rupp Arena I've never actually been to a game and I was gonna go to a game I was hoping Kentucky would have a home game that weekend regardless of who they were playing I was gonna go no matter what because I just always wanted to go to an actual game there to experience a big time college basketball environment and you look at the schedule and lo and behold who is Kentucky playing that Saturday night going into the national championship game? None other than our Georgia Bulldogs. So that literally could not have worked out better from a scheduling standpoint. I knew we were going to get killed, but it was okay. What I did go into the game, guys, I'll be honest with you, I usually, I almost, as a rule, don't ever bet on Georgia. I just don't, whether it's football, especially football, basketball, it's just, I just, I don't do it. It's like, it's like off limits to me. I just cannot let myself do that. I'm a weird person. I understand that. I get it. But to have this be a little bit more of a fun experience, I knew that we had no chance to win, but we were 23 and a half point underdogs. And uh, I went ahead and um, I put a, a wager down to size, not a size, we'll put a, a decent size wager on that just to have a little skin in the game because I knew that we were going to lose. And you know what, guys? It got really dicey there for a minute. We were, we were actually, I mean, we were 
up for large portions of the first half. And we were within striking distance going into halftime. I knew that wouldn't last, and of course it did not. But we got into the, the late parts of the second half, and they got up by 20, by 21. I'm sitting like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But hey, at the end of the day, we were able to cover, and I don't know about you guys, I take that as a win. I mean, that's about as close to a win as we're going to get in SEC play this season. We're almost certainly going to go 0-18. I mean, it'll take a miraculous upset. I mean, I, I get, we already lost to Vanderbilt. Already lost Texas A&M. I guess maybe we have a chance to beat Missouri late in the season, but Missouri, that game's on the road. They're also very terrible, but probably less terrible than us. So, I mean, maybe we luck up and win a game, but there's a good chance we go 0-18. So, to cover on the road in Rupp Arena when I put a bet on it and I was there, hey, that's a win. I'll take it. But it was still really fun to be able to go to Rupp Arena. It's a really, it's hard to describe. If you've never been there, and I don't know how many of you have, but if you've never been there, it's it's like, in, it's like a, this giant arena inside a convention center, basically. Like, it doesn't even look like an arena from the outside. I and mean, there's so many different ways you can kind of get in there. It's weird they're doing construction. It's strange. But basically, you go into this like convention center. You go up the escalator, and then you walk into the arena. When you walk in, it's it's stunning. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. It's massive. I mean, it's bigger than, than the Hawks arena. It's bigger than basically any basketball arena that I've been in. I mean, it's massive. Very, very impressive just from a size standpoint, from a noise standpoint. And they're clearly very, very into it. That's what they do. Um, I will say this, though. It, while it's massive, it's clearly bigger than Stegman. I would argue that Stegman Coliseum is nicer You know, after the upgrades. I, I know that a lot of people or think I'm crazy saying that because maybe you haven't been to Stegman in a long time. But if you've been to Stegman relatively recently, you know with all the upgrades, I mean, Stegman's a pretty nice arena now. I mean, like the exterior's got a, a facelift. We've got the hanging scoreboard now. We've got upgraded seats. I mean, we replaced all those seats. They've done a great job with the signage. They've done a much better job of concessions. They've just really upgraded the experience all the way around. The aesthetics look a lot better. I mean, Stegman Coliseum, I'm not saying it's like a... a, a top tier SEC facility in terms of college basketball, but I don't think it's deserving of all the condemnation it gets at times. It used to be, trust me, it used to be an absolute dump. It's still not the greatest Coliseum in the world, basketball arena, but it's it's not nearly as bad as it used to be. I think a lot of people who give it a hard time just haven't been in a while. I think the renovated Stegman is nicer. Honestly, like just from like a, a, a facility standpoint, I think it's nicer than Rupp Arena, but Rupp is just bigger, it's badder, and it's just louder, and it's just massive. I mean, clearly, it's a very big deal to them, and that was really cool to kind of see that kind of environment, like a true big-time college basketball environment. I've always wanted to go to a place like that, or the Dean Dome, or Cameron Indoor, or Allen Fieldhouse, or something like that. I just never had a, an occasion to be able to go to those places, and so it was awesome to be able to get in there. I will say this, though, as as into it as they were, and they were, guys, I mean, they were really into it. I came out of that saying, I'm just so glad that we're a football school. Like, football is just so superior. College football is just so superior. And the fact that like every game in college football, it, it's an event. Like every weekend, it's an event in and of itself. There's just so many games in college basketball and you can't travel to road games. They're just not as big of events isolated by themselves. And you don't have the same energy, same feeling throughout the entire town as you would like on a college football, like a SEC college football Saturday. You just don't have that vibe. So I, I, I tip my cap to them. They do it right. They do a great job. They are an incredible college basketball fan base. But and maybe this is me being biased. I don't care. I'm just so glad that we are a football school. Now, trust me, I would also really like to be good at college basketball too. I think you can be good at both. There are plenty of schools that prove that that can certainly be the case. I mean, Baylor just won a basketball national championship last year, and they just won the Big 12 
and in college football. And you get Florida in years past. As much as I hate to even bring them up and give them credit, they won a national championship in football and basketball in the same year. So yeah, you can be good in both. I want to be good at both. But if I had to pick which one would I rather be good at, which one would I rather be the bigger deal for my university, my fan base, hands down, no question asked, college football. But it was still an awesome experience. I had a great dinner. Uh, had some really nice bars downtown. Everything's walkable in Lexington. I will say it it was it had snowed slash started snowing later that night. That sucked. Um, you know, snow's great when you don't have to like deal with it. It's nice to look at, but like when you're going out there and it's cold and like my sh- is my fault. I didn't have like the proper shoes for it. I just had my sneakers on. Um, and I, I was trying to step around the snow, but everything was like piled up and it was just all nasty and wet. It was already cold. And like my, I thought I was not stepping. I didn't look like a puddle, but I kind of stepped into a snow puddle and my foot got soaked and it was soaked the entire way walking to um, Rupp Arena. So it was very cold. I got in there and then kind of warmed up. It was fine, but didn't love that. But hey, you know, it was a fun trip. Had a great time. I'm looking forward to going back in late November here in, uh, I guess, about a year or so. So did that on Saturday. Then we got up on Sunday, drove the, I went about two and a half, three hours in, in, into Indianapolis, got there around noon, noonish, something around there. And I was instantly impressed. The second we got into the Indy city limits, and you kind of see they had billboards, signage, 2022 College Football National Championship everywhere. I mean, everywhere, guys. They did it right in terms of promoting this event and making it feel like a big time environment, far superior to what I saw in Atlanta back in 2017. Really, no contest, not even close. We got to our hotel. It was right, literally right across from the Pacers basketball arena, what it used to be called Conseco Fieldhouse. Um, now it's Gamebridge Fieldhouse, I think now. So I stayed at the Hyatt Place, which is directly across there. And then once we got in the hotel, got settled in, there was a, a, a little seafood restaurant that was attached right to a hotel called Pier 48. And you wouldn't think Indianapolis seafood, but um, they had like lobster rolls and, and things of that nature that I usually really like. And you didn't think, I wouldn't think it'd be that good, but looked at some reviews and people were kind of raving about it. So checked it out, gave it a shot. Actually, fantastic. Really good. Didn't think you get good seafood in Indianapolis like that, but Apparently, they fly it in fresh daily. At least that's what they say. And it was good. It was good. I enjoyed that. So got our day start off there. And then we just kind of went bar hopping from there on Sunday. We went to all the sports bars in the area. We went to Kilroy's, which was a freaking madhouse. Um, it's, it's it's strange in Indianapolis. I mean, I guess maybe this isn't like this in other parts of the, of the country. I just haven't been to many cities where they card you. They get to be 21 or older to get into like the sports bar. Like, bars I get, but like places that serve food... Usually, like I don't have to give my ID to get in, which is fine. I don't care. I'm I'm older than 21, so it doesn't matter. That was just something that was I thought a little different than what I'd seen, like in southern cities, like in New Orleans or something like that. But Kilroy's was an absolute madhouse. It was really it it was not like an open floor plan, so it was really jam packed and everything was seat yourself. So that we stayed there for a little while, got a drink or two. But quickly realized we're just not ever going to get a table here. So we went down the street to another sports bar called Brothers, which was much more open. It was just as crowded, but it had more room, is larger, more room to maneuver. We ended up getting a, a, a spot there after waiting for about half an hour and uh, watched all the NFL games there for uh, was a week 18, the final week of the regular season. Had fun doing that. So that was great. And then we went to this like Latin tapas type place called the Livery for dinner, which was really, really good. It had a bunch of different kind of empanadas, fried yuca, different kind of Latin inspired dishes like that. 
And then for the nightcap, we went to, uh, this is a chain. I mean, it's in a lot of big cities. I'm sure a lot of you have been to a place like this called Howl at the Moon, where basically it's like a piano bar, a dueling piano bar. But it's just a live music venue, and you can go, and you can request songs, and they play them. And it's a fun place. A lot of Georgia fans in there. There were some Bama fans, too, but it was a lot of fun, very loud. But at that point in the night, that's exactly what I was looking for. So I had a great time doing there, kind of closed out the night. Then went back to bed, went back to the hotel, went to bed. Did not sleep, but maybe like two-ish hours, maybe if I'm lucky on Sunday night. And it was really just because I was wired, man. I, I like the nerves kicked in so bad. Like I, I wasn't drunk or like overly intoxicated or anything like that. No, I just, I was just wired, man. Like I was like, oh my God, it is like almost here. And the energy was just coursing through my veins. Couldn't sleep. Got about two hours late in the night, but then uh, got up early that morning on Monday morning. That morning, I was not tired at all. I had too much energy. I felt like someone had injected like a, just a gallon of adrenaline directly into my heart. I just like bolted upright in bed. I was like, all right, boom, let's go. And I wasn't going to run outside. I was going to run the treadmill. That was my plan. But the last second, I changed my mind because um, I thought, like, hey, you know what? When in Rome, let's do this. I thought it was going to be too cold. But yeah, I mean, it was like 13 degrees when I went out and, uh, and ran. But you know, I, I was dressed for the occasion. I brought some stuff just in case. And went out and had a, a really good uh, Monday morning run, pregame run. That's, that's my tradition, guys. I always run um, on game day, the day before the game. The day, I'm sorry, the day of the game. That morning, I have my playlist, my GATA, get after ass playlist. And they had a couple of really nicely paved running trails. I know a lot of you guys don't care about that, that kind of thing, but for me, that's important. So there's this thing called the cultural trail, and it kind of just took me all through the different parts of Indianapolis. And I had a nice, like, nine-mile run. It was beautiful. I didn't even get cold at all. In fact, I took my gloves off about halfway through because I got too hot, and uh, I was just rolling, man. So that was awesome. That was fun. It's a great way to kind of see more of what Indianapolis had to offer than just kind of like the downtown scene where everyone's kind of, like, concentrated. So that was great. Did not freeze to death. In fact, let's talk about the cold here for a minute. I, I keep hearing everyone talk about that. Like, oh, it was Indianapolis was fantastic. It was great, but it was so cold. If it wasn't for the cold, I mean, it, it's January, guys. It's cold everywhere. I know, you know, a week or so before we left for the game in, in Athens, it was like 70 degrees. I get that. And yeah, look, it was cold, but I didn't think it really detracted from the experience whatsoever. It was like mid to high 20s most of the time we were there. I, on Monday, it was certainly colder. Like I said, it was in the teens when I went to run. It got about the 20s most of that day. That night, it dipped down into the teens again. But I was prepared for it. I think if you were prepared for it, and like I was layered up. I had like three layers on, big coat, beanie, gloves, two layers of socks. Actually, on the game day, three layers of socks. So like I didn't feel like it was oppressive at all. I, I And maybe that's just because I was dressed a little bit more heavily for the occasion. I just wanted to be safe and not worry about it. But I didn't think it was a problem at all. It certainly did not detract from my experience and the fun I had in Indianapolis whatsoever, not in the slightest bit. And I do want to say this. I, I think I mentioned this on social media, but I just got to give Indianapolis one more big shout out. I mean, they deserve some incredible props. I will admit that I had some concerns heading into this game. Like I'd never been to Indianapolis. I was, I was excited to try something new and to see a part of the country and to see a city that I had never seen before. I like to travel. I like to see new things. Uh, there are certain places that I love and I go back to them all the time and I think that's fun too. But I also really like to experience new things and this was something new for me. Charlie did have to correct me. I thought this was gonna be the first time I had been in, to Indiana. But yeah, I did go to South Bend a couple years back. So I had been to Indiana before, but I had not been to Indianapolis. So on that level, I was excited, but I was also kind of unsure, like it's going to be kind of cold, is like, what's it going to be like? You just weren't sure. Some cities do a great job of these things, some not so much. You're like, well, it's not the SEC, it's not the South, it's going to be the 
like as big of a deal up there. And they blew me away. Like again, from the second I got into the city limits of Indianapolis, I was absolutely blown away. And I know everyone's different and I'm sure different people might have different takeaways from Indianapolis, but I have certain things I'm looking for when I go to a city for an event like this. I want bars and restaurants, good bars, good restaurants, and enough of them so they're not all completely jam-packed that are within walking distance of my hotel and really ideally within walking distance of the event that I'm going to. In this case, Lucas Oil Stadium. That is important to me. And Indianapolis knock that out of the park. If you've heard me talk about some of these cities before, one thing I'm big on, especially in some of these bigger cities that have you know pro teams, is I like these cities that have their stadiums around an entertainment district, which I'm, what I mean by that is bars, restaurants, that kind of thing. Fun stuff that you can do. Like Atlanta, I know a lot of us live, in, most of you live in Georgia, and you might live near Atlanta, and maybe you work in Atlanta, and maybe you love Atlanta, and that's great. And I don't mean to kill Atlanta, but I mean, come on. The entertainment options around Mercedes-Benz Stadium are basically non-existent. I mean, it used to be a Taco Mac and I would go there, but Taco Mac's gone. Then there's a Dantana's, but Dantana's is gone because of the pandemic. I guess Stats is not, it's kind of within walking distance. I mean, now basically for the SEC Championship game, I went to Hooters, which is fine. Like I don't mind Hooters. It's a solid-ish sports bar. It's cool. It's fine. But that's really all there is. There's just not those options that are within walking distance of the stadium. It's just, it, there's no like real true entertainment center or entertainment district like some of these cities do. And Indianapolis was fantastic in that regard. And they also had really cool, unique bars and restaurants that aren't just like cookie cutter, chain type stuff. And don't worry, they had their chains. They had the Tin Roof. They had the Howl of the Moon. They had places like that, but they also had Brothers and they had Kilroy's. And they had the library and they had, you know, of, of course, St. Elmo's, which I did not go to because I'm not, I, I know this is going to be blasphemous for a lot of you people listening to this. I'm not a steak guy. I'm not saying that I dislike steak. I don't dislike steak. I just don't ever crave steak. I'm never like, when someone asks me, hey, what do you want for dinner tonight? I'm never like, hey, how about steak? That's just not me. If someone puts a steak in front of me, I'm going to eat it. But there's other things that I like more. Um, so I, I, I thought about making reservations there just to say I did because it's like the thing you do in Indianapolis. But I was like, look, someone else would enjoy this far more than I would. So I'm going to let them have that reservation, have that table, and I'll go somewhere that's more in line with the things I like, which was what Livery ended up being. It was fantastic. Loved it. Had a great meal. But anyway, regardless, Indianapolis was fantastic. It was walkable, safe, clean, convenient. People were very gracious, kind, hospitable, great running, which is something I'm also always looking for. Again, I know that's unique to me and I'm weird. I get that. But like the things that I'm looking for in a city when I go to it for a football game or for any kind of event like this, Indianapolis was A++++ knocked it out of the park, man. Fantastic. Would 1 million percent support another college world national championship being in, in, in Indianapolis. I know, again, people are, didn't like the cold and they're certainly opposed to that. And I get that to a degree. I mean, ideally you don't want it to be cold. I understand that. But I thought they did such an incredible job and the city was built to host events like this that I would absolutely welcome an event like this being back in there, even if it is January. And I, I get now why like they have the Final Four every four years. I get why the NFL Combine is there every year. It is a fantastic city that's truly built for that kind of thing. I think it's a, it's an underrated American city. I really truly believe that. Fantastic place. You've, and I, I don't know if I would ever go just to go. I don't think I would, but if there's an event, something like this, if Georgia ever got its act together in basketball, if we were ever good and made it to the Final Four and it happened to be in Indianapolis, I would be all aboard going back totally 100%. Fantastic city. 
And in my opinion, I think it was in the college football playoff games that I've been to, it certainly beat the Rose Bowl. I know that the setting and the tradition, the history of the Rose Bowl and the way that game went down was iconic for us. I understand that. But the trip itself, like going to LA and then the whole process of getting to Pasadena and getting to that stadium and the stadium itself was just a rinky dink, like nothing. Like, no, I, I didn't really enjoy everything around that game. Um, Atlanta, no bueno. I mean, I've been there so many times. It's fine. It's drivable. It's convenient, whatever. But other than that, doesn't do much for me. Miami was fine. It was easy to get in and out of the stadium there. But again, there's nothing around the stadium there. I guess there was like a little casino, but that's it. So in terms of like casual playoff experiences, by far, this is the best one I had. Now, I've been in the Sugar Bowl many times or a couple of times when we've been in the Sugar Bowl. And I would prefer New Orleans over Indianapolis because I just love that style of food. I think New Orleans is one of the most fun cities you can possibly go to. Love New Orleans. But I will say Lucas Oil Stadium is far superior to the Superdome. The Superdome is an absolute dump. If you've never been in there, just take my word for it. Absolute 100% dump. After Katrina, they kind of put lipstick on a pig there. They should have just completely raised that facility, demolished it, and started new. It is just terrible. Sight lines are bad there. Just, man, not a good stadium at all. If you've been there, if you know, you know. But I love New Orleans. I think New Orleans is an ideal place for an event like that. But Indianapolis, man, um, probably uh, second place for me in terms of like big events and big cities for big games like this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, so I guess that's my review of Indianapolis, and that's kind of the details behind my trip to the national championship game. I'm sure I'm missing some things out, and there's some things I'm sure you guys probably don't care about, but I want to give you guys some of the highlights there because I've had a lot of people, actually more people than I thought would be interested in in that trip had been asking about it, so I thought I'd come on here and just give you guys a little bit of behind the scenes on um, the trip to Indianapolis. But okay, let's go ahead and move on here. And I guess this is probably gonna be the last thing I'm gonna have for you guys today. Like a bunch of listeners have hit me up asking me to do a list of the biggest plays of the national championship game. And people have asked for different variations of this. Some have asked for a top three, some for a top five, some even for a top 10. And I wanted to wait on that. I thought about doing this last week, but I wanted to wait on that until I had a chance to go back and digest the game a few more times. And I've done that. I think I'm on uh, watch number five at this point. So um, I think now I'm ready to give that a shot. And what I've done is I put together a list 
of what I think, I went with 10, what I think are the 10 biggest plays in the national championship game. Some you will agree with, some you're gonna be like, oh yeah, totally, obviously. And then some you're gonna be like, huh, like was that really that big of a play? And that's cool. I welcome that. I welcome the interaction. I welcome the disagreement. I wanna hear your thoughts on this as well. What did I get right? What did I get wrong? What did I leave out? What should have been on the list? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, guys. But here's what I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna rank all 10 of these, like one through 10. And the reason for that is I just think that's too arbitrary to do like a top 10 ranking because I don't I don't know what would distinguish play number nine from play number six or, or whatever it might be. I, I just don't know what would be the criteria that would distinguish like what makes this one more important. It's just too hard to do that with 10 different plays. I will, however, meet you halfway. I will rank the top three for you. I think that's fair. I think that's more doable. Uh, and I think there's probably gonna be a fair amount of, dis of disagreement with how I see those top three shaking out. A little bit of a teaser there. We'll get to that at the end. And I guess what I'll do here, I'll save the top three for last. And the other ones, I'm gonna kind of just go through in like chronological order based on how or when they happened in the game. I think I have these in chronological order. If, if one or two of them are out of order, I apologize, but I think I've got them in chronological order. At least I made my list doing that as I was going back rewatching the game. But let's start at the top here. Again, These the first seven of these are in no order. I'm just going in chronological order. They're in no order of importance, I should say. They're in chronological order. And let's start here. So this is on the very first drive. So it's third and five from our 19-yard line. Alabama's got the ball. They're going in to try to score here on the very first drive, take an early lead. Third and five, and Bryshawn drops back. He throws the pass, and it should have been a completion. And in fact, it should have been a touchdown. But the pass fell incomplete to Jaleel Billingsley, their like flex tight end guy. We brought five rushers on that play, which I told you guys come to the game, we need to do more of. His numbers went down tremendously. And the SEC Championship game, when we brought more than four rushers um, on any given down. So what we did on that play is we brought five. And to compensate for that, we rolled Lewis Seen, rolled the safety down into the slot and man coverage on Billingsley. Now, this is a matchup advantage for Bama. This is a matchup they probably wanted to get more often throughout the game. Because Billingsley, yes, technically is a tight end. He's a flex tight end. He's an athletic tight end that can make plays in space. And Seen is a, he's a safety. He's a very good safety who has declared for the draft. Good for him. I'm very excited for him. But like safeties play safety for a reason. They're not great in man coverage. They're usually competent in man coverage. They can help them hold up against most tight ends, but Billingsley is not most tight ends. He is an athletic tight end. I think that's a matchup advantage for Alabama in that scenario. And if you judge by the reaction of Bill O'Brien, the offensive coordinator, on this play when it, the pass fell complete, he felt so too. So what happened is Billingsley gets seen off balance but and when he's running his route, but Billingsley slipped coming out of his break. He's running, he's running like a seven-yard out route, and he slips coming out of the break, and the pass falls incomplete. If he does not slip, he catches that football, and he turns up field, and he scores a touchdown. And because Lewis Seen was completely off balance, he was his he's like turning around looking for the ball in, in the air. He has no idea where the ball is. That was a touchdown. If he does not slip coming out of that break, but fortunately for us, he slipped. Because if he doesn't slip there and they score a touchdown. It's just a very different ball game right out of the gate. It's a very different feel right out of the gate. It's almost like the, oh my God, here we go again. Because what did I tell you guys in the preview show coming to the game? We had to improve our red zone efficiency. If they got in the red zone, which they probably would because they're really good on offense, we had to bow our neck and force field goals, which we had done a fantastic job of doing all year long. And if they came out right out of the gate, first out of the game, get in the red zone and they score a touchdown right there, 
That's tough, man. And that's just a different feel. Force him to, to a field goal there, hold him to a field goal in that situation. I think the crowd felt better. I know I felt better. I was like, you know what? We're fine. We're fine. That's what we had to do. Hold him to a field goal. We're okay. If they score a touchdown there, it's kind of like, oh my God, here we go again. Here we go again, right out of the gate. So I thought that was a very, very fortuitous play for us and a big play that didn't happen right out of the gate on that first drive. All right, next up, let's go to the early part of the second quarter. And I know that a lot of Alabama fans out there and a lot of the haters out there like to play up the injury situation, say, oh, well, you know, if Jameis Williams hadn't gotten hurt, if John Meshie wasn't hurt in this game, then it would have been a different story. And you know what? Maybe it would have been. I don't know. But you know what? Guys get hurt. It's football. It happens. We've had our fair share of injuries all year long, and we still find a way to make it happen throughout the year. So I don't want to let Bama off, Bama off the hook here. I know a lot of their fans are trying to make excuses saying, well, you know, ifs and buts and whatever. I don't want to hear it. Get out of here with that. No. You lost the game. Deal with it. But I will allow for this. The Jamison Williams injury was significant. There's no doubt about that. I mean, clearly... I still think we could have won that game and probably would have won the game even if Jameson Williams does not get hurt. But him going out of the game as their one true, like legit remaining big time threat wide receiver, that certainly did help our cause. And him going out early in the second quarter certainly changed the complexion of their offense in terms of their ability to hit the big play once he went out. So I do think that's something that has to be talked about. And again, I'm not letting them off the hook whatsoever, but you also can't just like pull the wool over your eyes and pretend that it didn't happen because it did happen and it, it did have at least some sort of impact on how that game played out. All right, moving on to the next one I've got. Let's stick in the second quarter. It's about 849, I think, was left in the first half based on my notes. It was second to five. Bama's got the ball on their 31. And Keely Ringo's got inside leverage on tight end Cameron Latu, who was a, he's a tight end. He was attached to the line of scrimmage on that play. Ringo's got him in man coverage. And Ringo tried to undercut the route, but missed. Did not get the ball. They complete the pass. And Latu turns up the field and just races ahead. It was a 61-yard gain. But here's what makes it a big play for us. Keely Ringo did not just bury his head and let the play happen. He chased Latu down and caught him and tackled him at our eight yard line. Why is that a play that made my list here? Because if that's a touchdown, then that changes the complexion of the game. You'll see that theme throughout a lot of these plays that I pick, guys, some of these top plays. What did I tell you coming to the game? We had to keep this game within striking distance. We had to keep it within a score. I felt either we had to take the early early lead like we did in the SEC Championship game, and this time not blow it, or stay within a score of Alabama. Because if we got down multiple scores at any point in this game, especially as the game progressed, we saw what that looked like in the SEC Championship game. As much as I love Stetson Bennett, as much as I value and appreciate and admire what he brought to this team and what he did to help lead us to a national championship, Stetson Bennett is not built to come lead us back from a multi-score deficit against a defense that good. We saw that story already. That's not what he's built to do, and it's not what our offense was built to do all season long. We need to stay within our comfort zone, stay within our wheelhouse, and I know you guys have heard me say that so many times over the past month, but it's true. And that's why I think this play was huge because by chasing Latu down and tackling him, yeah, inside the 10, and still we still gave him an explosive play, which I didn't want to do, but by Tackling him there, we were able to get the hold and force him to another field goal, and they were only able to go up 9-3. We're still within a touchdown as opposed to being down 13-3 there 
in the middle of the second quarter. Thought that was a big, big play there. Here's another big play along the same lines where a defender chases down uh, a playmaker who could have potentially scored a touchdown. So this is third and two from the Bama 33-yard line. And they run a mesh route. They get a Jai Hall, one of their talented young receivers on the mesh route. They hit him. He kind of stutter steps, stops for a second, then turns back upfield, and he's able to break away for a pretty big gain. I think it ended up being a 24-yard gain on that play down to our 43-yard line. But even though it was a big play, kind of the Latu play, Trayvon Walker, defensive lineman Trayvon Walker, is the one who turns on the Jets, hustles downfield, and makes the play. If Trayvon does not make that play, if he does not hustle downfield, and guys, most defensive linemen, you guys watch college football as much as I do, you know most defensive linemen are going to get on their high horse like that and just chase down a talented, speedy wide receiver that way. Most of them can't do it. Most of them are too tired and too lazy to even try to do it. Trayvon Walker had both the desire and the ability to track down Hall and tackle him before he's able to get the ball in the end zone. Because if he does not make that play, he had a blocker in front of him, I believe he was going to score on that play. And if he scores there just before half, that's just before half, that makes this entire game a very different story. It changes the complexion of the game. Because again, we end up holding them there and not even holding them to field goal. We force them to punt, kept the score at 9-6 going into half. If they score there and it's 16-6, a 10-point deficit going into the halftime, again, very different story. We're outside of our comfort zone. 10 points is not a massive deficit, but when you're Georgia and you're playing against Alabama who scores the way they do, and we've seen that story already when we're down multiple scores to Alabama and how that worked out for us, at the very least, it's safe to say that would not have been an ideal scenario for us going into halftime. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, and then coming out of halftime, let's go to our first play that I've got here in the second half. And this was third and 11. Bama's got the ball on our 30 yard line. Three minutes and 23 seconds left in the third quarter. We bring five pass rushers. Again, I'm cool with that. I felt like we had to do more of that, and I think we did do more of that. And in this case, yet again, we have a safety in man coverage on one of their talented playmakers. In theory, that should be advantage Alabama. This time, it was Chris Smith on wide receiver Ajay Hall. Bryce Young drops back. And he's feeling pressure. The pressure's bearing down on him. We're about to get to him. And he releases the ball at the last second, right as we are about to bear down on him. And he absolutely, as you expect the Heisman Trophy winner to do, drops a dime with all that pressure bearing down on him right into Hall's hands. And Hall had about a, a half a step or so on Chris Smith. Again, safeties, ideally, you don't want the man coverage against guys of that caliber, guys of that speed and playmaking ability and they had a matchup advantage in theory that's an advantage alabama and they had it they had the play but hall 
drops it. If he catches it, I don't think it's a touch. I think Chris Smith was close enough to be able to, to bring him down before he scores a touchdown. But at the very least, it's first and goal at about the five-yard line. And Bama, again, about to go up 16-6, heading into the fourth quarter. And that was a massive, massive missed opportunity. And look, I don't want to say that that was just, you know, bad execution on Bama's part because Bryce Young did throw a dime. And yeah, sure, Hall dropped it. But Young did have to release that ball maybe a split second before he ideally would want to. Because I think if he had another beat to hold on to that ball, Hall with his speed could have pulled maybe another half step or full step away from Chris Smith and just walked into the end zone that play if they had the time. But dialing up pressure, this is why we had to dial up pressure. It wasn't that we were going to sack Young every single time, but his numbers, his passing numbers dropped dramatically when we brought four, or when we brought more than four pass rushers in that first matchup. And I felt like we had to do that again and just force some early throws, mess up with the timing, those kind of things. And that play, I think, was a prime example of that. But the fact that they did not convert on that play and did not go first and goal inside the five-yard line, I thought was massive there as we were about to head into the fourth and decisive quarter of this game. And that drop actually set up the very next play on this list, which I think most people would say was one of the biggest games or biggest plays throughout this entire game, which of course is going to be the blocked field goal with three minutes and 18 seconds left in the third quarter. Guys, that was a 17-play drive they went on. A 17-play drive that resulted in three points, at least a three-point field goal attempt. It actually resulted in zero points because we blocked that field goal. 17 plays, zero points out of that. I think this is what kickstarted our momentum heading into that decisive fourth quarter. And you guys all heard it. You know, pardon my French, Nick Saban himself said it. You guys kicked our ass in the fourth quarter. And this play did not happen in the fourth quarter. But this play set up that fourth quarter domination. This is what kickstarted all of our momentum going into the fourth quarter because after this blocked field goal, we went on to score touchdowns on three of our last four drives to close out the game. The only touch, the only drive that we did not score a touchdown on was actually the drive where Stetson fumbled, which is obviously a big play in the game as well, but it did not make this list because as you can tell, the theme of this list is these are all plays that contributed to us winning. These are the biggest plays that contributed to the Georgia victory. We're not going to call that Stetson fumble one of the biggest plays in the game. But that block field goal, absolutely massive. Again, went on to score touchdowns on three of our last four drives to close out the game. And that really, in my opinion, kick-started our momentum. Okay, here's where I'm going to get a little bit out of order because this is the last play that I'm going to give you guys before our top three. And again, I'm going to rank our top three. There's a couple of plays within our top three that actually happened before this play, but I'm going to save them, okay? So we're going to fast forward here. It's third and 12. Bama's got the ball third and 12 from their own 23. This is the ensuing drive after we just hit the touchdown pass to A.D. Mitchell to go up 19-18. We now have retaken the lead. We've got a one-point lead. We're hanging on for dear life. Hunker down one more time, dogs. That's all I was saying all game long, channeling my inner Larry Munson. So you guys know, up by one point, right? There's still a couple minutes left on the clock. This game is still very, very much in doubt. I am an absolute nervous wreck in the stands. I am living in my own universe at this point. I'm going through all of my superstitions that I have every single play. After every single play, I do my, my knock three times, do this, do that, and just I'm 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 a mess, guys. I'm insane. Like on a good day, um, I was an absolute mess 
at this point in the game. Because I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, we're so close, we're so close, we're so close. But oh my God, I've seen this story so many times. We're going to let this slip through our fingers. I know we are, I know we are, I know we are. And I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. I'm a nervous wreck. But we've done our job. We've gotten a third and long. This is where we want them to be. So where any defense wants an offense to be. Third and 12 from their own 23, we're up by one point. But I know how good Alabama is. I know what this offense could do. I know they have the Heisman Trophy winner quarterback. I am still losing my mind. Third and 12. William Poole in man coverage on Slade Bolden. Bama's running a bunch set to the right. They have Bolden at the apex. Bolden stacks Poole, gives him a little outside head fake, but William Poole, I got to stop and give this guy some credit here. We were hard on him. I I was hard on him coming out of the SEC championship game. One of the reasons that I felt that, or one of the things that I put out there that was one of the reasons that we lost that game was the, at the time I felt, almost inexplicable decision to put in William Poole in that in that game, in the biggest game of the season. This is a guy that hadn't played hardly at all, really any meaningful snaps his entire career through like four years here in Athens. And we put him in that game in that spot. And I don't think he played particularly well in the SEC championship game. No one in our secondary really did, but he certainly gave a lot, gave a couple plays there. And I was critical of that. But got to give Kirby Smart and company credit. They stepped to their guns. They felt like he gave us more in coverage, which I do believe is the truth. He did give us more in coverage than Latavius Breeny did. And Breeny, I mean, after the Tennessee game, he was just MIA. You know, he got benched in that game and just really did not factor in after that. And I wish him the absolute best transferring out. He, he made some really good plays for us this year, did some good things. But Poole did give us more in coverage and gets a team like Alabama. I get that that was something that we were looking for. But again, I was hard on him. But I thought he played by far his best football of his entire career. Now, he hasn't been out there much, but he took it up to another level in this game and proved me wrong. And this play was case in point. What a play by William Poole. Incredible play. He does not bite on that head thick at all. He clearly did a great job in film study, was coached up, and also give him credit for taking the time to study this and knowing tendencies. He didn't even think about it for a second. He knew that they were running the dig route there, and he did not deviate from that whatsoever. He's able to, he was playing trail technique. He gets his hand inside there when the ball is thrown. He's able to break it up, deflect the ball, and fourth down force the punt. We live to see another play. I'm still losing my mind, but I'm not losing my mind as much. I took a deep breath, probably my first breath in about a minute and 30 seconds. You know, the entire drive, I basically wasn't breathing. My face was just red, about to die. But incredible play by William Poole. Just fantastic. Got to give that that guy a lot of credit. That was a huge play because, I mean, guys, all they need is a field goal there. They need a field goal. They drive the length of the field. Who knows what we're able to do after that? It's just a different game. So big time play from William Poole there. Definitely got to give him his props. And that brings us to our top three plays. I'm going to count this down. Three, two, one. Okay. And honestly, like, I know some of you are going to disagree with me on some of these. And that's that's great. Again, I love that. I, I welcome that. Uh, and, and these honestly could be in any order. I think like, you can make an argument for any of these being one or two or three. But here's how they came out for me. And so coming in number three, I've got the touchdown pass to Brock Bowers, third and one. That put us up by eight points, a touchdown and a two-point conversion, which was just massive, man. I mean, no, it's not technically two scores, but it's as close as you can get. And it really, like, I'm still losing my mind, but I'm feeling a lot better. Like, oh my God, they have to score a touchdown and a two-point conversion this time. I'm not breathing regularly at this point, but it was a gutsy call. I mean, we're running the ball down their throat, which I felt that we could have done all game long if we just committed to it. We finally committed to it. They're getting worn out. They didn't have the depth that we have up front. 
And I'm thinking the third and one, we gotta run the football, right? But you know, Bama, they felt that too. And I will give Todd Munkin credit. This was, I know we threw the ball, but this was not a pass play. It was an RPO where we had the option to run or throw the ball. If you watch, he's reading Henry Toto. Toto bites on the run and Bowers out there wide open. And I gotta give Stetson Bennett a lot of credit on this play. I haven't heard enough people talk about this. On this play, Stetson, it looked like a terrible pass, right? It's a duck, he kind of just throws the ball up there. But we go back to last year. How many times did we murder Stetson Bennett for getting balls batted down? That really was never an issue for him this year. Now, part of that is him becoming you know, more experienced and understanding how to manipulate the pocket and create throwing windows. But he had, a, I think it was Jordan Bowler's safety, bearing down on him. And he understood that. If he doesn't loft the ball over his hands, then that ball is going to get batted down. And that, it's now we're forced to get a field goal. We're still up by a you know, about four points, they've scored a touchdown to win, but very, very different feeling going into that that last drive for Alabama there. Very, very, I guess second to last drive for Alabama. Very different feeling. So Stetson, the awareness to understand he's got to get that ball up over his hands, and he does. He got It's like a push shot. It's like, you know, almost shooting a free throw, throws the ball up, Bowers catches it, rest is history, touchdown, and go by eight points. And that's huge. That's absolutely huge. And this point, I'll be honest with you guys, like, I won't sit here and say that I... 100% felt like we had just won the game, but I felt like it was extraordinarily unlikely that we were going to allow Alabama, our defense at that point, allow them to go down the field and score a touchdown and get a two-point conversion. Now, we know how good Bryce Young is. Anything's possible. Absolutely. We've seen that before, and we've had our heart broken by Alabama in the past in, in that kind of situation. I understand that, but just that defense in that situation with how bonkers that stadium got after that touchdown... I just don't feel like they were going to come. I just didn't feel like they were going to come down and score. I just didn't. So obviously massive play. And if that ball falls incomplete and we settle for a field goal there, it's a totally different feeling with Bama getting the ball on the ensuing possession. And that brings me to number two on my list. Now, this is where I think a lot of you are going to disagree with me because I think the vast majority of people in the Bulldog Nation would unquestionably have this at number one. And it's really hard to argue with that. But I'm going to try to make my own little case for it not being number one. And I'm talking about Keely Ringo's game ceiling pick six. I know this won't be a popular choice. I know that this is the one that sealed the deal and set off celebrations throughout the state of Georgia that still haven't stopped. They're still going on. I'm still celebrating. So I know that a lot of people are like, dude, what? Like, this is like the iconic play. This is the play that we're all going to remember from that game. And I, and I, again, if you make that argument, I'm not going to argue too much with you. I, I, I get that. But I think there was one play that came shortly before it that loomed even bigger over the entire game. And let's go ahead and get to that one. Number one, the number one biggest play of this game, of this Georgia National Championship victory over Alabama, for me, in my opinion, was the touchdown pass from Stetson Bennett to A.D. Mitchell that put us up 18-13. And hear me out on this, guys. Just hear me out on this, all right? We had just fumbled, all right? On the previous possession, we had just fumbled. You know, that was the Stetson trying to make a play. God bless him. He was fighting, man. I'm not going to hate on Stetson. He's trying to do what he could for us to win that football game. We had just fumbled, turned the ball over, and they had converted that into a touchdown, and they had taken the lead 18-13, right? So we give them that touchdown. They're up 18-13. And at that point, that's where I was at my lowest point in the entire game, guys. Because sitting there in the stands, after Stetson fumbled, I was told, I was like, okay, man, if we can hold him to a field goal, if we can hold him to a field goal. But then we didn't hold him to a field goal. At that point, 
all the images of the previous fourth quarter failures, previous fourth quarter collapses against Alabama, this same program, they were flooding through my mind, they were flooding through your mind, they were flooding through our collective bulldog consciousness. History was weighing heavily. And I was just down, man. I was sitting there, I'm muttering to myself about this deal that Bama fans made with the devil. I'm I'm incoherent at that point, just talking about, oh my God, like why, why does Bama, why do they always get to win everything? Why do good things always happen to them? Why can't we have one thing, just one freaking time? Why can't we have it? I'm just, I'm beside myself, man. I'm in the depths of despair. I'm losing it. And then it all changed. It all changed with one incredible play. And maybe we score outside this play. Maybe we do, but we don't know that. And when that ball was completed, when Stetson, to his credit, recognizes that they jumped off sides, it wasn't an obvious offsides. It looked like to me they were offsides and they threw him through the flag, but he recognized that. He takes a step or two to the right, unleashes the ball, and completes that pass to A.D. Mitchell. A jolt of energy, the likes I have never experienced in my life, coursed through my veins. I cannot really truly describe that feeling. I, again, felt like a gallon of adrenaline shot directly into my heart. It was, it was just an incredible feeling. You don't get that in the other walk of life. People ask you like, hey, why do you care about this so much? That, that's one of the reasons. I mean, that, that, that right there. You don't get that feeling anywhere else. And that play developed right in front of me. I was in the upper level end zone right there and I saw the play develop. That's why I like seeing the end zone. I, I love seeing those things develop. And I'm sitting there and I, and I, I saw him jump off sides. I'm screaming, free play, free play, free play, free play. And I'm just hoping that Stetson sees that, and he does, and I see A.D. Mitchell break open. I'm sitting there saying, oh my God, he's open. Oh my God, 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 he's open. And then it looks like he catches it, but you don't know. And did he catch it? Did he drop it? You just can't really tell. And it was like, it probably took him a second, but it was one excruciating second to wait to see if it was a touchdown or not. Again, it was a second, but it felt like an eternity. And then once the referee's arms go up and I see it, it is pure pandemonium in my section and the rest of the stadium. We're going bonkers. We're going bananas. We're losing our minds. We're right back in it. We got this. It was incredible. To me, that's, that's the play. Without that, do we get to the point where Ringo's interception even matters? Because again, again, go back to like that stadium, guys. Minimum 70% Georgia fans. Minimum. And the air had come out of the crowd. The momentum had shifted after Stetson's fumble, after that Bama touchdown when they went up 18-13. So for us, on the next drive, the very next drive, with all of the history of, of this rivalry weighing on us and how these games have gone in the past, for us to come back on the next drive and throw it, come out throwing the way we did, and then to hit that big play and for it to be an incredible catch the way it was, I mean, I will sit here and say, right now, I think that is the greatest catch in Georgia football history. And I know there's going to be the old-timers from 1980 saying, well, but blue Lindsey Scott, run Lindsey run, that's the greatest catch in Georgia history and maybe it's the most iconic for the last 40 plus years to this point hard to argue with that one but in my lifetime let's say at least in my lifetime 
and, and I would still argue in Georgia history, to beat Bama in that moment and with that play in the national championship game. I know that we had to beat Florida to win the national championship in 1980, but that was not the national championship game. It wasn't the fourth quarter of the national championship game. Fourth quarter of a big rivalry game, yeah, I get it. That helped us win a national championship. Very true. And you can make, certainly make an argument for that play. But this play, I mean, it wasn't, it alone did not win national championship, but it gave us the lead when we felt like, I felt like this game was slipping away from us because we'd seen this story so many times in the fourth quarter, just game-changing plays, Bama makes the plays, and we don't, and the game slips away from us. And it seemed like it was happening again after the Stetson fumble, after they scored the touchdown there, and for us to make that play, it was an incredible catch. AD had tracked that ball. It was a good throw. Stetson gave him a chance to make the, the throw, but it wasn't a perfect throw. He had to reach back across his shoulder, make a contested catch, bring that ball in, hold it through the ground, and boom, touchdown. To me, greatest catch in Georgia football history. The Michael Johnson catch in 2002 against Auburn, uh, probably the, the greatest catch I'd seen at that point in my life. I was in high school when that happened, but that was an incredible catch. Obviously, gave us our first, put us in the SEC Championship game for a shot of our, at our first SEC Championship, I think, what, 20 years at that point. Uh, Terry Godwin against Notre Dame was a big one. Malcolm Mitchell against Florida in 2012 to seal that game and then put us in the SEC Championship game where, again, fell short against Bama in a fourth quarter heartbreaker with a chance to go face Notre Dame to beat up on them and win a national title. Those are all incredible catches, big time catches in Georgia history as obviously run Lindsey run. But for me, for my money, I think this is the greatest catch in Georgia football history. And maybe I'm improving the moment. I'm trying to not be. I really like, I haven't come on here and said that yet because I've been trying to like, just let it like sink in a little bit and see if I really feel that way. And I, I still do. I still do. I think that's the greatest catch in Georgia football history. So I'm going to go with that as the biggest play of the game. The ring of interception, number two for me, obviously, again, you can make an argument for number one. It sealed the deal. And that's what everyone's always going to remember there. But that Mitchell catch happened right in front of me, man. And I will never forget the way I felt and what that did for this team in playing a role in helping us win our first national title in 41 ridiculously long years. But all right, guys, my voice, it's still, it's fighting back, but you can probably tell it's about to fade on me here. So I'm going to get out of here with that. Curtis and I will be back later on this week. We'll probably be talking some NFL declaration, transfer portal stuff. We'll probably have enough information to operate off, off of at that time. So make sure to check back for that. But thank you guys for listening. I know this is kind of a, a weird episode, just kind of rehashing this one more time, looking at it from a little bit of a different angle. But I had a lot of people asking about these things, so I wanted to jump on here and um, at least give you guys my take on the trip to Indianapolis, that experience, and what I think were the 10 biggest plays to the Georgia victory over Alabama in the national championship game. But thank you for listening, guys. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.